When he forgives our sins, he absolutely pardons them. In Isaiah 55, 7, it says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, to start off, I think all of us here like kids. Kids to us are just very amusing to watch, to play with. And to me, kids are really funny. I spend a lot of time on YouTube just watching like kids doing dumb stuff. And a lot of the things they do, I just find incredibly amusing because of their thought process. You never really know what they're thinking, especially with how they deal with conflict. When conflict shows up in the life of a kid, kids either completely ignore conflict, not even, they just assume that it's not there, or they just run away from it. Many kids, including myself, once had the thought of running away from home. And no, I was not abused by my parents. That's not the reason why I wanted to run away from home. But I remember there was a time when my parents, they wanted to limit how much Coke I drank. I was drinking, I think, 1.5 liters a day. And I was, you know, sneaking it behind their backs. I was drinking, chugging it. And they were trying to limit my, my Coke, my Coca-Cola drinkage or usage. And I was really annoyed by this because I was literally fixated on this, on this product. And I thought to myself, man, I could just run away from home. I could drink all the Coke I want. I could just live life as I want to. I can just play games all day because I was a, a real lazy guy. All I did was play games, eat junk food, and sleep. And I keep thinking, man, if I just ran away from home, that would solve all my problems. That's the life I need. And this thought of running away, a lot of kids think it as well. And it's always brought about by some dumb reason a lot of times. And so I looked in the internet, and I found a list of notes left behind from kids who ran away from home because of some silly reason. Now, I put some pictures here. I, I, I'm pretty sure you won't be able to read it, but let's put up number one here. I, I don't know if you can read that, but it says, By the time you read this, I might be leaving. If you want to see me again, I will be at the first McDonald's that you see when you go right from our house. I love you. So at least the kid showed the parents where he is, so that's good. The second one here. I am running away because you think I farted when I didn't. P.S. You are mean. So he was falsely accused. That's fair for him to run away. I understand the kid. This one's nice. Third one. Do not call the FBI or police. Um, I will be back at Wednesday. The reason why I have done this is because you are mean. Sam, son, whatever his name is. Fourth one here says, Mom, I'm going to run away tomorrow at 9.30 when you and Dad are steeping. Be sure to say goodbye forever. P.S. I will be packing tonight. So I like this kid because he gives his, his parents the opportunity to redeem themselves. You know, they have until 9.30 tomorrow to fix their issues. <laughs> so that's good. Good kid. And this last one is kind of the saddest one. Mommy, I think I might have to run away sometime and get a new life and other stuff. And I think I'll have enough money and get a job. I'm sad I have to go, but I'm having a rough day at school and other times. I'm going to have to go on Saturday. Please help me pack and get a new mom. <laughs> if they don't want me, take me to the orphanage. I love you and I'll miss you. So poor kid, just suffering from school. But I, I read a bunch of these notes and they were just all like silly reasons. 
And to us, it's amusing. To us, it's quite funny as we read these notes. But to these kids, they mean serious business. They're, they're, they, to us, they're just joking around. But in these kids' mind, they really do want to run away. They're ready to run away, and they believe they can tackle every challenge that this world has to offer. But as adults, we know the reality. It's not that simple to run away and to live life independently from your parents, especially as a young kid. Where will they sleep? How will they find food? How can you stay safe? Where will you shower? What job can you get? Kids get the desire to run away simply because they believe that life will be so much better, so much easier, and they'll have so much more freedom when they're not under the influence of their parents. They think that the grass is greener on the other side, but that isn't reality. Running away will only increase to their sorrows, and unfortunately, it has happened in the past, it could lead even to their death. Well, today's sermon is also about a young man who runs away from home. He's not quite a kid, so he should have known better. But the point remains that this young man thought that it would be best for him to leave the presence of his father and to live on his own, to live independently. And as we read and look at the story of the prodigal son, or the parable of the prodigal son, there's an important message and truth for all of us to learn. So that before we dive into this parable, let's just open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this parable that you've given us, that you've left behind for us to read and, and study. I pray, Lord, that this story, the truths and principles that we can get and glean from the story will touch our hearts this morning. And I pray that you give me power, enable me to uh, preach your message, give me wisdom, a discerning spirit as well, to remove and add things that uh, may per pertain to the, the message and sermon. And I pray that you would just give all of the congregants a listening ear and to take something away from your word. And this all in your name. Amen. This passage, this parable is quite well known. We know this as the parable of the prodigal son. And within this story, we have three key characters, all of which we can learn, from, learn a lesson from. And depending on where you're coming from, where you are at in your Christian walk, I think you'll be able to relate to one of the three characters. You'll take a message. I think not all three points will uh, affect you or will be applicable to you. So let's go back to our, our passage in Luke 15 and just open your Bibles. Keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 15. We'll be spending the majority of our sermon just studying this entire chapter. And we're at verses 11 to 13. That's our, our, our passage there. And I'll read it again. It says, And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. So the first character we see in this parable is the younger son. You could even say that he's the main character of this story, of this parable, since the parable centered around him and his actions. So at the beginning of this parable, we see the younger son asking his father for his portion of inheritance. Now this might seem like a menial thing, but this was actually a disrespectful act on his part. Here's a young man asking his father, give me my inheritance now. I don't care when you would want to give it to me. I don't care what you think. Father, give me your inheritance now. 
He was being disrespectful. This wasn't him asking, pretty please, can you give him inheritance now? I think he was being mean about it, given everything that we know about this young man. He wasn't taking this money in order to pay off another debt. He wasn't taking this money in order to invest it and and grow it for the future. He was thinking of using this money to fulfill his lust, to use it for the present, not for the future. This young man, all he wanted to do was to have as much fun as he can in his youth, which is very typical. A lot of people in their 20s, a lot of the people in my age group, they want to use their 20s to explore, have fun, but this young man is taking it to the very extreme. To live in excess was this young man's goal. And we can assume that he liked living a very hedonistic lifestyle. He loved anything that would bring his his flesh pleasure, he was willing to do and partake in it. He was a very hedonistic man. And the Bible described his use of the inheritance as riotous living. Now, this young man knew that if he had stayed in the presence of his father, if he had stayed in the the house of his father, that he wouldn't be able to live this way. As long as his father was around, he wasn't going to be able to do whatever he wanted to. So what did he do in the passage? He went off to a far country. He left the house. He ran away figuratively and lived on his own in a far-off country. And here... He could live life as he pleased. The father wasn't there to tell him what to do. There was no rules for him to follow. No one was going to nag on him. No one was uh, uh, going to lecture him on his life's choices. He could do whatever he pleased. He was free to party as much as he wanted to. Again, very common. Kids... Especially, uh, you see a lot of the kids who are raised and they're very sheltered and very, they were in very, under very strict parents, they didn't give them a lot of freedom. They go off to a, a secular university, for example, and a lot of times they just go wild. They, go, they, they just go down off the deep end. They just experiment with all sorts of sins because they're just so curious when, they're not in the, when they, there's no longer anybody telling them what to do. And this guy had the same idea. He left his father in order to live a riotous life. In his foolishness, or maybe in his inebriation, this young kid didn't even realize how fast he was burning through his inheritance. In a short matter of time, he had wasted all of it. And I like how they used the word wasted, meaning that not a single dollar of his inheritance was spent on anything worthwhile. Every single dollar went to something that will fulfill his hedonistic lifestyle. Now he had nothing, nothing to his name. But his situation was about to take a turn for the worse. In verse 14 of the same chapter, it said, And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land. And he began to be in want. Just when this kid spent everything that he had, a famine, a great one of that, spread throughout the land in this far off country. Now he had no money to buy any proper housing. Now he had no money to buy food. Now he had no money to 
to, to buy any basic necessity, let alone feed his hedonistic lifestyle. He had nothing to his name. He was stranded and he was all alone in this far off country. I'm assuming that he was hanging out with the, with the wrong crowd, but that wrong crowd probably left him to, to die in this, in this country. The moment his money dried up, all of those people left him. Now he's alone. If he doesn't do anything soon, this young man will die, sadly, in this foreign land. And so he had to do something. So in verses 15 to 16, we see him take action. It says, And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. Not having many options, the younger son was forced to humble himself and find a job that was not befitting for someone that he thought he was. What was the job that he found? Feeding swine, feeding pigs. It's far from being a a reputable job. And this young man wasn't doing this job in order to receive money and, and a wage. When we apply for a job and we get, uh, get a job, we're doing it so we can earn a paycheck at the end of the day. But this young man wasn't doing that. Remember, there was a famine, a great famine throughout the land, meaning that the rest of the people didn't have enough money to give to other people. They were, everybody was suffering. So this young man wasn't doing this job in order to receive a wage. He was doing this job as a, as a means to feed himself. He tried begging on the streets, maybe. He says he begged, he asked, but no man gave unto him. He tried begging for food, but no man gave it to him because the other people around him saw how he lived, saw how he used the money that he had, and that he wasted it. So no man would want to give to a guy like that. So he resorted to finding a job to feed the pigs, and he would use this as the avenue in which he can find food. And the food that he was eating was the husks that the, the pigs ate. And I have a picture of what it could be. It's called uh, fruits from the carob tree. So it kind of looks like uh, brown, rotten, green beans. That's what it looks like. But histor- uh, historians believe that this fruit was what they gave pigs because it was for the poor, it was everywhere, and it was very easily affordable. And so this young man, he went from the top of the world, living a very hedonistic lifestyle, a rich lifestyle, to now having to feast on whatever that was. I mean, it's better than nothing, right? But nevertheless, he, was, he resorted to eating the food that pigs were eating. He was at rock bottom. But you can only handle living like this for so long. Eventually, this young man's morale started to cave in, and he finally started to come to his senses. And we finally see a change of heart in the next few verses, in verses 17 to 19. It says, And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And so here I introduce my first point, and that is the repentance of the son. The repentance of the son. After running away from home, after squandering his inheritance by living a wicked life, this young man, this prodigal son, found himself at rock bottom all alone with nobody to turn to, nowhere to turn to, 
And the father that he had cast off from his memory long ago, the, the father that he forgot about long ago, the father that he disrespected long ago, finally came to mind. In his, in his despair, in his depression, and in him being at rock bottom, he finally remembers his father. The father who has only showed him love and kindness all throughout his life. That father. Now he knows that he can't just come back to the father as if nothing happened. He knew that he had disrespected his father by squandering his inheritance, by rejecting his authority. He knew that if he went back to his dad, he would have to go back on all fours, begging, pleading, Father, I am not worthy to be your son, but at least make me one of your hired servants. I know I've messed up as a son. You can't, I, I, I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore, but just make me one of your hired servants. I'd rather be a hired servant in, in your house than be here in this far off country with nothing to my name. His mistakes, his difficult circumstances woke him up. This kid knew that he was in the wrong, finally. He didn't really know how he could turn his life around. All he did know was that his father was still available. There was still the potential option for him to return to the father. So he had a change of heart and he repented. This wicked young man who only ever thought about himself was able to turn his life around by changing his mindset and by repenting. The younger son, the prodigal son, may represent someone's story here today. Like the younger son, maybe there was a time in your life in which you had a close relationship with God. You were on fire for God. Every single church service that you could attend, you attended. Maybe there was a time in which you were excited to learn from God's Word, whether it be in your personal devotion, whether it be in, during a sermon. You were just yearning and, and thirsting for the Word of God. Maybe there was a time where you were burdened to pray every single day, not because it was your duty, not because you have to do it, but because you love to pray and talk to God. Maybe there was a time in your life where you were so zealous to share the gospel to other people that whoever you met, you were wanting to share the gospel with that person. Maybe there was a point that that was you. That somewhere in your Christian walk, you started yearning for what the world has to offer. You start seeing Christian principles as limitations and rules that need to be followed. You start thinking that the grass is greener on the other side. So, you see the allures of the world. You see how the people that are worldly, they're looking like they just have so much fun. They party all the time. And it looks like they're doing fine. It's the worldly people who are billionaires. It's the worldly people who are celebrities and athletes. If they're doing a, a, living a lifestyle like that and they're doing fine, what's, what's the harm in me dipping my toes into that world a little bit? So you give in. You dip your feet in sin. You dip your feet in worldly pleasure. But here's the thing. Sin is addictive. There's a lot of addictive things in the world. Chips is one of them, Pastor Tim. You know, you can't have enough of chips. You can't have enough Coca-Cola either. I gave it up, by the way. So, sounds like a drug. But anyways... <laughs> It's addictive. There's a lot of addictive things in the world, but at the top of that list, heading that list, is sin in general. You won't be satisfied with just dipping your feet in sin for a time, just dipping your toes in, just dipping your feet in there. Eventually, you want a, 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 a more taste of it. 
Soon, it's not just your toes, but you're dipping your, your entire leg in there. Soon, that, that won't be enough, so you, you, you dip your lower half in there. And eventually, you give yourself enough time, you'll be submerged fully in sin. And even that might not be enough for you. As the famous quote goes, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. You may have only wanted a seven-day free trial for your sin, but you'll end up getting hooked for a lifetime. That's how it works. You get tricked. This devil tricks you into, into luring you for a temporary time. For Here, entertain this sin for a while. I know you'll be able to quit it in no time. Don't worry. Just, just do this. Just do this for me. Enjoy the pleasures that it brings. And within, within a month, I guarantee you'll be able to quit it. But that's not what happens. You get addicted. You get hooked to that sin. And you now find yourself uh, uh, having a lifetime of battling with this addictive sin. Sin is addictive and destructive. At first, a life of sin may be fun. It may be exciting. It may be even more pleasurable than what you see with, as how Christians live. You feel like you're on top of the world. The prodigal son felt the same way. Don't you think when he was partying every single night, spending all of his money on women and, and, and wine, don't you think that he, he felt like a king? He probably did. But when, that, when the, those women left, that wine was gone, what happened to him? What was he left with? Nothing. It only feels that way for a time. The consequences come in. And you wish you had never sinned in the first place. These are people I know, and I think a lot of us can relate. There's addictions that started off when we were young. And now, in our adulthood, we had wished that we would have never even taken a part in that sin when we were young. Because now it's lingered and has been a thorn in our side since then. That's what sin does. It's not good for anybody. A life of sin only leads to anger, sorrow, despair, hopelessness, depression, and discontentment. And if those things sound appealing to you, then go ahead. Keep sinning. But if that's not what you want for your life, and I believe that nobody in this room wants that in their life, there's good news for you. It's never too late to repent and turn your life around. But you might be saying from that statement, you might reply, but Brother Ivan, you don't know the things that I've done in my youth. You don't know the sins that I've committed just last year. You don't know the horrible, the horrible person I was when I was a young man or a young woman. I'm far too gone. It's far too late for me to be forgiven by anybody. Really now? Is that really what you believe? Now let's take a look. Let's, let's depart from Luke for a while. Let's go to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. And let's uh, read these, uh, these two verses out loud together. It's ver uh, chapter 33, verses 12 to 13. So if you're there, read it out loud with me. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed unto him, and he was entreated of him, and heard his supplication, and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord... He was God. You might be thinking, okay, so 
this Manasseh guy, he changed his life around. What's so important about Manasseh? Anybody who knows Manasseh knows why that's significant. Because Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings that has ever reigned in both Israel and Judah. He was comparable to Ahab and Jezebel that was in the northern kingdom. He was the equivalent in the southern kingdom. Manasseh was wicked for the majority of his 55-year reign. He only did that which was evil in the sight of God. Let me read some of his sins. He raised up altars for Baal. He introduced a new form of idolatry by worshiping the hosts of heaven. He built altars in the house of the Lord. He sacrificed his own son to a false god named Moloch and, and condoned it as a common practice for the people to follow. He practiced soothsaying. He used witchcraft. He consulted mediums. And he shed much innocent blood. Does that sound like a good guy to you? Does that sound like a guy that you would want to forgive? Probably not. If I saw a guy with a list like that, I would stay far away from him. And that's why I'm human. I don't have the same love that God has for people. And the same amount of mercy that God has for people. Because we see that though he was as wicked as Ahab and Jezebel, because of God's mercy and long-suffering, even, he even gave Manasseh the opportunity to repent and change the way he lived. This wicked man repented. And God acknowledged that repentance. It was also when Manasseh was at rock bottom that he finally humbled himself and sincerely repented of his sins. And God forgave him. So for us to say that we're too far gone, for us to say that we've done so much wrong in the past that God will never forgive our sins is just a wrong thing to say. Because if you humble yourself... If you sincerely repent and go to God for forgiveness, He will forgive you. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You might be thinking, that's not fair. So Manasseh can just live for 55 years doing wicked things and in the last second he turns his life around. How is that fair? Well, I'm not God. You're not God. The love that we have for people is so much, it's, it's based on conditions. But God loves with un unconditional love. He's able to condone and forgive the sins of even Manasseh. And he can forgive our sins as well. So yes, you may have messed up in your life. There might be a person here who is living like the prodigal son. They're only at church, maybe only at church because you're, you're forced to, maybe only at church because it's become part of your routine. But maybe behind closed doors, you're living like the prodigal son. And if that's the case, it's not too late for you yet. You may be doing things that you'll eventually regret, but it's not too late. Because God is not done with your life. There was a point in which I've done things that I regret, and I thought to myself, that's it. Finish. This is the, this is the end. God will no longer use me. This is the end for me. And it, it was a long process. It started with a, a sermon that Pastor Tim preached in camp years ago on forgiving yourself. Because sometimes we've gone to God for forgiveness and He has already forgiven us, but we have not forgiven ourselves. And it takes a while for us to forgive ourselves sometimes. If you have regrets, don't be afraid if you sincerely go to Him and repent and turn your life around, God will forgive you and will show grace. Let's continue the story. In Luke 15, 20, if you go back there, 
We move away from the, the Son, and now we move our attention to the Father. In Luke 15, 20, it says, And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. First of all, this was not the reaction that the son was expecting. He was probably expecting to get slapped around, maybe hanged up on by the hired servants. He was not expecting such a warm reception. And here we find our second point, and it is the rejoicing of the father. We saw the repentance of the son, but now we see the rejoicing of the father. Now, this father is a much better man than I am. If I had a son who went and wasted his entire inheritance on, on women and wine of all things to fulfill his pleasures and lusts, I would not be reacting the same way this, guy, this father did. I, would be not, I, will, I won't be running towards him, giving him a hug. Maybe I'll be running like this and just getting ready to sock him in the face. You know, this kid messed up big. All the money that I saved up for years and you just squandered it on women and wine? How dare you return your face to me? But this father was a better man. This father ran to meet his son. He fell on his neck and he kissed him. He forgot all about the wrongdoings that he's done and he just rejoiced in the fact that his son was still safe and was still alive. The father had compassion on the sinful son. Luke 15, 21. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Again, he rehearsed that in his mind. And he said the exact same thing that he, was, he rehearsed. But as you can see, the son was sincere in, in his repentance. He wasn't putting on a performance in order to gain sympathy from his father. He knew that he messed up. He knew that he didn't deserve to be called the son anymore. He knew that he didn't deserve his father's love and compassion. But the father doesn't just stop here. In Luke 15 to 20, 22 to 24, his father rejoices even more. It says, But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Not only did the father not get mad at his son, but now he's giving him precious clothes, he's giving him a ring, probably of great value. And on top of that, he's throwing a feast for him. He killed the fatted calf. A, such a precious commodity. He killed the fatted calf for the son who sinned and wasted everything. I, I understand having compassion for the son, but to throw a grand, a grand feast and a, a celebration to, for his return, it seems excessive. It seems inappropriate to me. But to this father, it wasn't excessive or inappropriate because the son who he thought was dead and gone is now back. To the father, what he cared about most was his son's return. And on top of that, his sincere repentance. He wasn't the same son that had left him years ago. He is changed. He has understood the gravity of his mistakes. Our heavenly father up above is the same way. When a backsliding Christian, when a Christian who has lived the life of sin for the longest time, when that Christian returns to him, 
asking for forgiveness? Our God doesn't look at that backsliding Christian and say, get out of my face. I'm done with you. I have no more use for you. No. He rejoices in the fact that you came home to him. He wanted you to return all this time. And now that you are finally seeking him and you're wanting to come home to him, God rejoices. He's not going to smite you or send judgment upon you for returning to to him. If you decided to live a life of sin and continue in sin, yes, he'll send judgment. Yes, he'll smite you. But if you, have, if you acknowledge that you have done wrong, if you acknowledge that, uh, that you are, uh, you've been living like a sinner, and in humility ask God for forgiveness, God will rejoice in your repentance. All of the lost parables, speaking of all the parables in Luke 15, all of the lost parables convey this theme of rejoicing. The shepherd who found his missing sheep Rejoice greatly. He had a hundred sheep. One went missing. I mean, if one sheep went missing, it shouldn't be too bad of a loss. But this, this shepherd, when he found that one sheep that was missing, he rejoiced greatly. Or the woman who rejoices when she finds her missing silver coin. She had ten coins. She drops one, can't find it. And she looks around everywhere. But then she finally finds it. She rejoices. They rejoice over that one lost thing being found. And there is great rejoicing in heaven when someone who was once lost and has gone off the rails is back and wanting to rekindle that relationship with God once more. Again, it's not too late. Don't be ashamed or afraid to go back to God. The shame, the shame and fear, it's felt by so many people. There are people who are sincerely repentant and they want to do the right thing, they want to restore the relationship with God. But they're hesitant to go back to him. Why? Because they feel ashamed. Even though God has forgiven them, they have not forgiven themselves and they can't steal themselves to approach God ever again. But folks, when we, when we ask forgiveness from God, he pardons our past mistakes. It's different from the forgiveness that we give to other people. When we forgive someone, that their, their wrongdoing is still in our mind, correct? Their wrongdoing lingers forever. So even though we've verbally forgiven them, sometimes when we look at them and we have those off days, we remember, oh, that guy, I remember, I forgave him, but he said this to me. Our forgiveness is flawed, but God's forgiveness is perfect. When he forgives our sins, he absolutely pardons them. In Isaiah 55, 7, it says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Whenever you feel that you are unworthy to approach God ever again after you've messed up in your life, remember that He Himself is the one encouraging people to return to Him. He wants those who are doing wicked things, He wants those who are sinning to come back and to forsake those things and come back to Him. And He's willing to abundantly pardon your mistakes. And He will rejoice in your repentance. What an encouraging thought. That we have a Father who rejoices when we return from our sinful ways. Do we deserve such treatment? No. But nevertheless, that's how God chooses to deal with His children who have been restored. Do we, de- do we uh, deserve such level of grace and mercy? No. For, for especially with how many times we mess up on things, we don't deserve that level of treatment. But nevertheless, that's how God chooses to deal with us. And we love Him for that. 
But we have one final character in this story, and it's the elder brother. Let's go to Luke 15, 25 to 30. Again, just further in the chapter. And it says, Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brothers come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandments, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. This third point, point we find the rage of the brother. We see the repentance of the son. We see the rejoicing of the father. But someone was angry. The rage of the brother. This elder brother was furious. He was seething with anger. All this time, this elder brother lived a good life. He lived an upstanding life. A life that was worthy of respect. A life that was worthy of honor. He stuck by his father all these years. He was a respectable man. He never did anything wrong. He didn't do anything that would besmirch the family name. He was faithful, obedient to his father. But not once has his father thrown a feast for him. He was angry. He, he tells his father, all of a sudden, my rotten little brother comes home from his life of debauchery, and now you decide to throw a feast? And it's for him? Not for me? Not for the guy who's been by your side the whole time, faithfully obeying all of your commands, serving you all this time, honoring you? This feast is for him? You know what? I can understand this older brother's anger and jealousy. Because to him, it seemed like his father was rewarding foolishness and wickedness. But that wasn't the case. His father replied and comforted him in Luke 15, 31 to 32. A great response. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. The father essentially tells his elder son that though he's never thrown a feast for him, though he's never killed the fatted calf for him or his friends, the brother has a greater reward. Son, everything that I own, all the possessions that you currently enjoy, all the, inheritance, the remaining inheritance that I have, all of it is going to you. You're not just going to get a fatted calf. You're not just going to get a temporary feast. Everything that I own is yours already, son. The blessings I give to you are much greater than the feast I'm throwing for your brother. So don't envy. Don't get angry at your brother's return. But rejoice that now he is found. You know, sometimes we act like the elder brother. Some of you may not relate to the prodigal son. You've never fallen off the deep end. You've never entertained sin and lived a life of sin. I think a lot of us might relate to the elder brother. We look at the prodigal son and we look at what he did and we call him foolish. And we also can't understand why the father would forgive such a man. The prodigal son needs to be punished, not celebrated. There may be a time in which someone who fell from the faith returns to church once more. They start trying to serve God as best they can, 
trying to restore the relationship with God as best they can. But maybe we've done wrong and we've judged that person for trying to restore and rekindle their, their relationship with God. Being that elder brother. Don't be that elder brother that condemns and judges a backsliding Christian who is trying to return to the faith. Don't condemn and judge them for their past mistakes and failures. That's not up to you. There are a handful of people that I've personally talked to, and not in this church, but I've met a lot of Christians just where, in places that I go to. I've talked to them in the past, and they, a lot of them say that they don't go to church anymore. They want to go back to church, but can't. You know why? Because they fear that the people in that church will judge them. That the fear, they fear that the people in that church will outcast them. These are the faithful, you over there. You backslidden at one point in time, you're never allowed of the, in our main group again. They're afraid of that. They're afraid of being shamed. They're afraid of being excluded. Being excluded hurts. As a person, I was, especially in elementary, I was always excluded. I was bullied all the time. I was always looking into these groups of friends, never having a friend of my own. It hurts to be excluded. So is it really a surprise that so many backsliding Christians don't return to church once more? Because they are expecting to just be excluded at the end of it. Or, you know, it could be just baseless assumption on their part, but I don't believe it is. You know why? Because the Bible says a lot about this. I think we can be too judgmental sometimes, especially towards believers who have erred in the past and who had publicly sinned. Sometimes we revel in the fact that we have remained faithful and shame the others for who have fallen away from the faith. But this shouldn't be the case. Are we called to judge or shame them? No. What are we called to do? We're called to love them. In Galatians 6, 1, it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Why? Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. If you were to fall away from the faith, and everybody's susceptible to this, no one is immune, no one is perfect. If you were to fall away from the faith, wouldn't you want the other believers to kindly restore you back into the fold when you want to repent and turn your life around? Wouldn't you want other people to show love and compassion towards you when you're trying to return to God? As believers, let us not be older brothers, the elder brother. But instead, rejoice when backslidden Christians come home and return to the fold. Let's not be judgmental. Let's not be condemning them, but show them love. As I end this sermon, the focal point of this story is still the prodigal son. This is not the father, not the brother. And similarly, my sermon is directed primarily towards those who may have fallen away from the faith, far away from God. Those who are living and are trapped in their sin. I urge you to come home and return to your father. A life, again, independent from the father is not going to bring any good thing to you. It's a life of destruction, life of loneliness, a life of despair. Return to the father. That sinful, sinful lifestyle that you, that, you're, that you are clinging to will yield no reward, will yield no joy, only destruction. So come home where your heavenly Father is patiently and joyfully awaiting your return. Even when we feel broken and inadequate, our brokenness becomes a canvas for His grace and redemption. 
I've always loved the song, Come Home. And as I read the lyrics, uh, Pastor Tim, you can get prepared to close us in a word of prayer. I've always loved the, the song, Come Home, and its lyrics. It fills my heart with gratitude and hope. Hope that even if I fall away and mess up, there's an ever-loving Father who will continue to love me with unconditional love. And as I read this, the lyrics to the song, Come Home, just think about it. And maybe you're the one that needs to come home to God today. You wandered far from homeland, down paths so dark and cold, in search of all the pleasures you could hold. Your freedom bought you bondage. Rebellion bought you fear. But Jesus stands behind you, and homeland is so near. Remember how it used to be when fellowship was sweet, the time well spent in worship at his feet. You know, it doesn't really matter how long you've been away. Just let his spirit cleanse you and be restored today. Come home. Your father really loves you. Come home. It's where you ought to be. It's a place of peace and comfort, a shelter from the storm. So don't wait another moment. Come home. Let's all close our eyes and stand as Pastor Tim closes us in a word of prayer. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.